This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Welcome to our 13th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at Point Loma Nazarene University. And with us today is Philip Yancey, one of the most prominent and thoughtful uh, authors, especially on themes of spirituality. Books of his uh, titles are, are things like What's So Amazing About Grace, uh, Disappointment with God, Soul Survivor, How My Faith Survived the Church, The Jesus I Never Knew. His book, Where Is God When It Hurts, had a special edition made for after the 9-11 attacks distributed to Red Cross workers throughout the, uh, throughout the area and to emergency workers in uh, New York and Washington. And his most recent book is called Prayer, Does It Make Any Difference? His books have sold more than 5 million copies, and he's the, one of the editors at large for Christianity Today magazine. Philip, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Dean. I've noticed through reading your books, Philip, that on, on these spirituality themes, that regardless of the topic, whether you're talking about the Bible or whether you're talking about prayer or Jesus or, or the church or whatever, there is, there is this, this sense that you're saying throughout each of these topics, things are not so simple as I, as I once thought they were. Now, five million copies, you've sold a lot of books, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, doesn't the world... Wouldn't they rather have seven steps to something or five languages to something? Or, or, and, and here you are, you're taking these topics and you just say, well, let's look at, let's look at life, you know, the, or these topics like a little gemstone. Let's turn it this way and see how the light hits it. Let's turn it this way and see how the light hits it. Why can't you just come up with a formula or something for us? Probably would have sold more million books if I did that. Um... A lot of people convey that Jesus is the answer. That's a phrase you see. I come from the South. Sometimes it's written on graffiti. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. I find that Jesus doesn't make life simpler. Jesus makes life more complicated. There are a lot of things that I wish I didn't have to care about. I wish I didn't have to care about global property. I wish I didn't have to care about racism. I wish... I wish I could just pull into my little hole and live my little life and indulge myself narcissistically, but Jesus doesn't allow me that option. So if I'm going to be a serious follower of Jesus, life isn't simpler. Life is more complicated, richer, fuller, more rewarding, ultimately, but certainly not simpler. I suspect that has that the fact that you started out as a journalist has something to do with this too, where you're taking complex issues and trying to communicate them in some way. Is it, it would it, did being a journalist help you in these kinds of big topics that you're writing about? That is, you're right. My identity is as a journalist, and a journalist is a generalist. We know a little bit about a lot of things, but we don't know a lot about any one thing. And so we take complicated things, but we try to we try to make them simple. We try to communicate them to people who aren't experts, because we're not experts. So if you, if you look at some of the topics that you mentioned, 
when I was writing the book on Jesus, somebody wrote me and said, do you realize that there were 25,000 books about Jesus published this year? <laughs> Thanks a lot. Um, who needs one more book on Jesus? But it's a, it's, a, it's a huge issue, or prayer. When I started, I had no idea how, what I would say, because I, I didn't write because I'm an expert on prayer. I wrote because I'm very bad at prayer. And most of my books, I start like that. I start from a standpoint of ignorance, sometimes willful ignorance, because I'm there to represent my reader. And uh, I'll take a, a huge topic like prayer, the problem of pain, Jesus. But I'll wander around the edges thinking, not this is what I have to say to you down there, but my goodness, what in the world am I going to say about this huge topic? Let's just dive in and together we'll go and attack it. Now, I know, I, I know part of what you read informs how you write as well. And, and you've said that you try to keep a steady diet of Shakespeare and Russian authors. <laughs> Why is that? They, Shakespeare and Russian authors capture the human experience in a more complete and revealing way than anyone I know. Uh, I went on an experiment one time where my idea was to read one play of, of William Shakespeare each week. I didn't make it. We moved to Colorado in the meantime. It took me about a year and a half. But when I started, uh, it was usually Wednesday night, as it turned out, and I was, when I first started the first few weeks, I thought, oh, boy, this sounds like work. This is like going to school. Well, once I got into the rhythm, once I didn't have to keep looking at each little Elizabethan word in the footnotes to figure it out, it became an enjoyable night. It became one of the most informative nights of the week. And why? Because Shakespeare knew what human nature was. Any any uh, honest psychiatrist would tell you that Shakespeare knew about, more about the human psyche than any psychiatry book, all psychiatry books put together. And the same would be true of, of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Uh, the two of them together, even though they're writing over a century ago about upper-class Russians, generally, before the 20th century and before the Russian Revolution and the changes, somehow they captured that, that universal chord I find in my own writing, Dean, that if the more specifically I write about myself, the more detail, the more personal, individual, specific detail, the more likely it is to strike a universal chord. So uh, there's kind of an irony at work. But if I write very specifically about what it's like to grow up in uh, a, a really toxic, fundamentalist, screaming, hellfire and brimstone, legalistic, angry, racist church in Atlanta, Georgia... I don't tend to get letters from people who grew up in that kind of church. I tend to get letters from a Seventh-day Adventist who thought drinking coffee was a great sin, or, or a, a New York Catholic who, when a nun slapped her hands when she was in the third grade. Why? I, I don't even know what that experience is like. But only by writing the specificity can I possibly strike that universal chord. And I think that's what people like. Shakespeare, Tolstoy, and Dostoevsky did. They wrote in a very different time about very different people, but they did so in a way that struck that universal chord. Is that why the book To Kill a Mockingbird was so important to you when, when you were starting to, this, this whole detoxifying process? Was there something in that book that, that resonated in that same way with you? Yes, there were several books that, that uh, challenged me. One of the problems of growing up in a toxic church is that when you find out that some things 
are wrong, then you're tempted to throw everything out. And we were taught doctrinaire racism from the pulpit. We were taught that uh, the dark races have been cursed by God and that they could never, they could never rise to, to positions of prominence. They make good servant class, so they're very good waiters and all that, but they could never. Well, one year, I was a junior in high school. I was assigned a job at the Center for Disease Control, which was then called the Communicable Disease Center in Atlanta. And I knew that my supervisor for the summer was a PhD in biochemistry. I walked into his office. It's a black man, Dr. Cherry. And this contradicted everything I was told in church. About the same time, I was reading books like To Kill a Mockingbird, Black Like Me, an extraordinary book by a man who took uh, injections, took drugs, so that his skin actually turned black. Here's exactly the same man. Not a thing has changed except his skin color. And now when he walks down the street in New Orleans, he's treated radically different. And I realized, huh, it's not, this is the same person. It, there's something else going on here. And uh, literature was an eye-opener for me. It was a window into another world. Because when you read a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, it, it goes around the culture I was raised in, the church I was raised in, the family I was raised in, and, and opens a window to a different way of looking. Now, I understand the, uh, the rock star Bono is, is a fan of yours. Now, he, he, he actually called you, didn't he? Or one of his people and wanted to hang out? Um, I suppose you could say that. I, you know, I... I don't listen to much music written after about 1910, frankly. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I had the joke with my church when, I, when, I first, when this thing first happened. I thought, I thought Bono was married to Cher. <laughs> and I thought U2 was a spy plane. But some people in my church cut some CDs for him and said, you really need to listen to these before you, before you met him. He had uh, read my book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and actually wrote a song called Grace, and speaks eloquently about the difference between grace and karma. And he came to, to Denver. We were supposed to meet in London. That fell through. His father got sick and ultimately died that night. So I thought, well, so I guess that's over. But he, he came to Denver, and we had lunch with the band. There's quite a story there. You, you had lunch with Bono just because you wrote a book. Bono and Edge and Adam and Larry oh, and all these guys. You're making me sick. <laughs> They're just ordinary guys who make $100 million a day. Uh, <laughs> uh, tell, tell us about the lunch. Yes. Well, the entire lunch, we, we asked for a place with a private dining room. And the entire time, there were these teeny boppers that had cafe curtains across the, the window to the street. And these teeny boppers were jumping up and down. So you'd see cute girls' heads, you know, throughout. Bono would just blow them kisses and wave. And... and we never saw the same weight person twice because everybody was bidding to go refill the, the glasses, you know. And, and uh, my wife had this rather crazy idea. She said, they're coming to our territory, and we, we should pay for lunch. I said, are you crazy? These guys make $100 million on this tour. Why should we pay for it? They won't even see the bill. It goes into some... And we went... We went over this several times, and she kept bringing it back up. She said, didn't you write a book about grace? This is very unfair. Yeah, don't you hate it? <laughs> when spouses take that stuff literally. I know, I know. So, uh, so we did arrange that it would be 
cards to my credit card in advance. Well, the guys in the band were ordering, oh, you know, oh, we'll have one of these, one of these, one of these. Oh, let's have some nice wine. They're ordering, and I'm sitting there going, ka-ching, 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 you know. But, but she was absolutely right. I don't think anyone has ever picked up a check for them. And they were very impressed and then invited us uh, to stay with them the next time we came to Ireland, which happened to be in September. So, so we did. We visited them over there as well. And Bono is a, he's a very bright, why did he have lunch with me? Well, partly, he had read my book. But also, he knows I'm a writer. He's deeply concerned about his issues of AIDS at that point and, and then the uh, debt reduction in Africa. And he wanted a chance to, to bend my ear, to say, you're a voice to the Christian world particularly. Why don't you get on this bandwagon? Why don't you realize this is the most important issue of our age? And uh, he was very compelling. So he had an agenda for this. He did have an agenda, yeah. But it'd be fun just hanging out, wouldn't it? Yeah, just... it was kind of fun hanging out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Till the bill came. <laughs> can, I, can I ask how much the bill was? Uh, I don't know, $300 for five people for lunch? That's not so bad. <laughs> you want to go to lunch after this? <laughs> <laughs> now, l- l- let me ask you something about your writing process. You have said that 80% of your life is sitting in the basement struggling to write. You've said it's an isolated, boring, paranoid existence where the only words you utter when writing are tall latte, please, to the Starbucks person. Is that true? 80% of your life? Uh, that, that is true, yeah. Uh, of course, the writing breaks down into different phases. There are sometimes when I'll research a book and spend months before I actually write a word. But I'm sitting there reading books, taking notes, filing it away on computer, doing all that. It's a lonely existence. And, you know, Dean, I, I used to think if I do this long enough, then it'll get easy. And it actually doesn't get easier. It gets harder. Really? In the After com- 16 books? Well, there have been 20 now. You're using outdated PR material there. but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking four of them were a piece of cake. I see. Okay. <laughs> But the problem is, the longer I have done it, the more things I learn about things I'm doing wrong. And in the composing stage, every time I write, I come up with one word. Oh, I got one word. Oh, no, now I've got to find another word. And I have these voices going on all day long. That is such a cliche. You've said this before. This is plagiarism. You're stealing it from somebody. You say the same things over and over. What a, what a flat verb. You know, these kind of voices all day long. Now, later in the editing phase, those voices do me a favor because I can usually go back and improve them. But in the composing stage, there's this weight that hangs over every word, and each word I come up with, the weight just transfers to the next word. So I, I wouldn't even subject my wife to that. I have a place out in the mountains, and I go on my own and stay out there as long as it takes to get that first draft done. You go away from home to write that first draft. I've, I've heard you say because you get pretty irritable and cranky and not, not very fun to be around. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, but you also love nature. So how do, do, does nature inform how you write? Or is it a good way to just take a break from those, that 80% of crankiness? I, I, I know I called your house one time and Janet said you were out snowshoeing. I just thought, how cool is that? But is, is that, does that help you? Reconnecting with the planet is what I need to do. I, I wrote an article one time called, Is Writing a Psychotic Act? 
And, <laughs> and if you look up the definition of psychosis in a, in a manual, they would say, well, a, a psychotic is a person who has an alternate state of reality, different than everybody else's, and confuses the two. Well, that's the, the definition of writing. You create your own state of reality, and it's far more interesting than everybody else's reality, but only you live in that. And, and if you are really living in that, it's, it's hard to enter other people's. You know, you're, this is more interesting. These are your characters. Every word comes out of you. It's, it's a narcissist dream. And, uh, and so if you do that all day long, it's all inside your head, of course, then what happens to the rest of your body? The surveys I read show that more writers, percentage-wise, become alcoholics. We, I'm sure we drink more coffee. It's because we, we need to do something with our hands. You know, We, we smoke, we drink, we, what, we do whatever. We just move our bodies. Uh, what I try to do is, is use the rest of my body at some point during the day. So I'll, I'll work all morning till late afternoon. About the time NPR comes on, then I'll go out and go snowshoeing or cross-country skiing or mountain biking or something like that. Just pound, pound, pound. Clear my head a little bit. Reconnect with the planet, and then I'll come back in for, for an, an evening psychosis. <laughs> you, you like to work from outlines, don't you? Do, do you, you, you? When you write, you aren't just finding out what you think about stuff. You, you've, or have you just created these structures... That's how you spend a lot of your time, is creating how these things are going to be structured, right? Right. Outlining is a, is a great way of writer's avoidance. Um, the, the more you outline, the, the more you delay that period of putting words on paper. And so often, uh, my outlines are as long as my chapters. Oddly enough, the, the chapters don't resemble the outline. But I, so why do you do the outline? Well, writing involves two different sides of your brain, the left side and the right side. And the left side, do I have this right? Is the logical coherence side? That can, yeah, okay. Yeah. The left side is the logical coherence. That's the outlining side. And so that's when I, when I approach a topic or an article or a chapter, that's how I approach it. Let's see, what should go first here? Then what should follow? How do I wrap this up? Where should the illustrations go and all that? You know, and I, I think I've got that exactly down. And then I start to write, and the right side of my brain says, excuse me. <laughs> I have a word yes. to say. And what I thought was going to be the introduction to the story in one paragraph becomes the entire article, you know? And what can I do? Uh, but I can't get to that right side without starting through the left side. I, some people may have a way of doing that. I haven't found that. Now, you suffered a horrific car accident about a year ago, broke your neck, and it was possible that you could have very easily died in that thing. And it had to be uh, uh, just kind of immobilized for a long time. Did that have any impact on you and on, on how you write and, and how you think and reflect about stuff? It did. Um, there was a period of time after the accident where I, I felt like I was going through what I call a days of grace. And that was, I, I had faced death. I was strapped in, my head strapped down, neck brace, and... Uh, Your car went off a mountain road. That's right. Rolled over five times and um, fortunately landed right side up. If I had had a broken neck, was upside down, undid my seatbelt, it would have been very bad. It was bad enough. And um, so I went to, they strapped me in, took me to the hospital, 
did all the CAT scan things. This, it's great. This little town in Colorado had a CAT scan, but they didn't have a radiologist. So they had to modem all the images to Australia, where it was a normal weekday. It took an hour to send all the images there, an hour for them to diagnose, and they came back. He's got a broken neck, and it's right next to a major artery. You've got to redo all the CAT scans with an arterial dye. So they redid all that. As it turned out, I was seven hours strapped in. And at one point, the doctor said, uh, you know, you've got one arm free with a cell phone. Uh, we've got a jet standing by to fly you to Denver for emergency surgery if, indeed, the artery was nicked and is bleeding. Uh, you should call the people you love and tell them goodbye. And um, so it, it was one of those moments, you know, that everything changes from this moment on. And I, I did spend a lot of time thinking, uh, well, what a blessed life I have had. I've traveled many countries. I've, what are my regrets? And I, I had two. One was, I haven't climbed all the 14,000-foot mountains in Colorado. I've got three left. <laughs> there are 54. So last summer, after I recovered as much as I could, uh, I climbed those last three. So I got that one out of the way. And, <laughs> and the other thing I thought about a lot was, was what have you not written yet that, that if you died, you would regret? Because, you know, I could have died the next hour. It seemed real at the time. And, uh, and, and this theme, again, that I started with of the, of the detox is something that I'm still struggling with, the best way to express that. But every day, I'm not exaggerating, every day the mail comes I, or the email comes, I, I get a letter from someone who was wounded deeply by the church. Someone who... who is searching in a spiritual sense, wants to connect with God, maybe is attracted to Jesus, but has really been hurt by the church. And um, I have to find a way to express my own life because most of the wounds they describe, I think, oh, I can top that. <laughs> Let me tell you about my church. You know, but, but it has a redemptive ending in my life because I was able to reconnect. And, and I realized that God was not this scowling, judgmental, God that I was brought up with, but rather the universe at its center is, is a smile. It's an, it's an embrace. It's the story of the prodigal son. And I, I want to convey that message to people who have been wounded, because that, that is my story. And I've done it in little bits and pieces here and there, but I haven't done it in a, in a complete way. So I need to find a way to do that. now. And this gave you a little bit of urgency, perhaps, it to did. say, I need to get after it this. It did. We have a lot of people uh, uh, watching and in our audience here who, who are aspiring writers. You got some advice for them? Stop! It's not too late! <laughs> uh, it's a hard thing. Uh, I can't imagine being anything else. This is my choice, and I'm, I, I can't imagine making another choice. But it is a very hard thing. When I've climbed some of these mountains, some of them are very hard, and I've been in places where it's 2,000 feet down, and I don't see a way out. And I think, you know, I'm shaking. You get that shaky leg syndrome. And I think, oh, man, I don't know if I can get out of this. And then I'll think, oh, yeah, but it's easier than writing. <laughs> and I just scramble up to the top of the mountain. But, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know of anything harder, um, frankly. And I, my advice, I would say, I would say it is a learnable skill. 
I, did, I learned how to write sentences, how to write active verbs, how to, by studying the masters one by one and part by part. How do, you, how do you do a sentence? How do you do a paragraph? How do you do an article? How do you do a book? It is a learnable skill. You need that kind of personality. You need an introspective, sorting-through personality, which most writers have. Don't do it alone would be one of my words of advice. If you can find a group around you that gives you feedback. That's the hardest thing for writers. There's so many kids, I'm sure, here at the school in teaching creative writing. You've seen this great talent come out, and they're all into self-expression. Let's express myself. But you don't make a living in self-expression. You make a living by connecting to people who want to pay money to, to say, this was worth my time. And uh, to do that, you, you need to learn to take criticism and feedback, and you need to learn to improve. And a writer's group is a great way to do that. So that's one thing I recommend to aspiring writers. You know, the one thing about criticism, I noticed this on the back of your, uh, your book, Prayer, Does It Make Any Difference?, it says, in his most powerful book since What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey probes the very heart. You wrote a lot of books in between there. <laughs> and you got your own publisher saying, oh, this is the most powerful one since that. What are they saying about those ones that you wrote in the meantime? They're saying, eh, those aren't so. Well, they don't understand them. No. <laughs> 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 you know, PR, people who write jacket copy, what they really mean is, in his best-selling, and we hope it's his best-selling book since, What's amazing about Grace. Okay, so they weren't really criticizing the ones you had done in between. No, but I, I do get criticism, so I, I know about criticism. And yet, you keep going. Yes, and I, I must say uh, that I have found, to my surprise, that the more risk I take, the more I am rewarded. So, for instance, What's Amazing About Grace that you mentioned I remember clearly when I mailed off that manuscript to the publisher, I said to my wife, this is probably the last book that I'll write for a Christian publisher. It's got a whole chapter on a prominent gay activist, Mel White, who is a friend of mine, and a a whole chapter on Bill Clinton, not the poster child of American evangelicals. So I said, when I get this out, I'm going to be blackballed. You know, they're going to stop carrying my books in Christian bookstores. And, And now it's being used by ad copywriters, you know, the most powerful books since... I was wrong. I was wrong. And, and one of the gifts that I'm grateful for in growing up is that growing up in a, in a fundamentalist, radically fundamentalist environment, I learned where the landmines were. And I learned that I'm not radical. Jesus is radical. It's Jesus, not me. And if, I can, if I'm talking about grace, if I can ground that in the gospel, which is pretty easy to do, it's what the gospel is all about, the reader's got the problem. And if you do it correctly, then they have to just confront I, not everybody accepted Jesus in his day, obviously. But it, the word grace is not my word. It's the Bible's word. And if I can keep grounding that in the Bible, the people that I thought were going to draw and quarter me actually uh, bought my books. <laughs> Philip Yancey, thank you so much for being with us today. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.